Let us pray. Gracious Lord, like Nicodemus, we come to the word with many questions. Like the Pharisees, we can be captivated by correctness, intent on right answers. As we turn to your word, Spirit of God, do not let our desire for information dominate our need for transformation. Let us hear the word and be moved to greater faith and obedience. Amen. I will be reading our first scripture, which is from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 7 through 12. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him, the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish, he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. Thank be to God. Our second lesson is from 1 Corinthians, reading from the first chapter, verses 18 through 25. This is on page 1038 in your Pew Bible, should you wish to follow along. This is the epistle lesson for this third Sunday in Lent. <clears throat> Let us continue to listen for the word of God. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are, being, who are called... Both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We have a problem in the church in Christendom. If you listen carefully to what Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, it's not a new problem. It's been around for a long time, and that problem is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
It's a puzzle. It's a paradox. It's a or an incomparable enigma. How do you explain or make sense of the cross of Jesus Christ? People outside the faith and even some within the faith wonder about the cross. How is it that we have an instrument of torture and death as the primary symbol of this religion? How is it that the death of an innocent man in the place of those who are guilty, something to be celebrated, not just during the season of Lent, but throughout the course of the year? So there's no question that the cross can be a problem. It is both the scandal and the glory of the gospel. Paul recognizes this and confesses it in his writing. He says, we preach not just Christ, we preach Christ crucified. And then he admits this is a stumbling block to Jews. It's pure folly. It's foolishness to Gentiles. Truth be known, many aspects of the Christian faith seem foolish to those outside the faith and sometimes to those in How do we explain or make sense of some of the primary cardinal doctrines of our faith, the incarnation, that God would become human flesh? How do you explain that? The cross, how do you justify or explain that to children or adults? The resurrection. You remember when Paul was preaching in Athens and the people were listening carefully until he got to the point of Jesus' story about the resurrection. They said, no, we're come back another day. This is too much. But one problem we have is that uh, the cross puzzles and mystifies people. There's another problem we have that for those of us in the church, and it might be a greater problem, and that is it's not that the cross offends people. It is that the cross has ceased to offend so many of us. After all, we've grown accustomed to the cross. We have crosses all over our sanctuaries. We wear crosses as jewelry. It's almost an object of art more so than an object of brutal, inhumane torturing. The scriptures don't go into great detail about the nature of crucifixion, and we can be glad that they don't because it's a gory, horrifying mess. It's the worst possible death for the worst possible offender in that age. You see, uh, the crucifixion was reserved for special criminals. A Roman citizen couldn't be crucified. It was reserved for foreigners and for some who were so an offense to Rome that they had to be made a spectacle of. They had to be made an example of. So uh, crucifixions took place outside the city walls of uh, Jerusalem and other cities so that people could see and be warned what the consequences are for violating the Pax Romana. When our children were at home, our four children, we had a game that we played. If we had a free evening and we played this when we went on vacation, all you need for the game is a dictionary and some pieces of paper. And we called it the dictionary game. And I understand there's even a board game called that or something like it now. But the object of the game was you'd sit around in a circle. One person would pick a word that nobody knew the definition of. And then everybody would write their own definition, make up definitions. And then you would read all of the definitions around the circle and you'd go around and people would choose a definition. The way you scored points was every time someone chose your definition, you got a point. If you happened to choose the correct definition, you got two points. But the way to really build up points was if you chose a word that nobody guessed because it was so outlandish or ridiculous, 
then you could get five points. Well, in the course of playing dictionary game over the years, I've learned some interesting words. Uh, Agnestis. Do you know what agnestis is? It is that place on your body that you can't reach to scratch. <laughs> and some of you are very conscious of your agnestis right now, I'm sure. Uh, look at your hand. Look at your fingernails. You see that little white, whiter half moon shape? That's your lanule. Did you know that? And the, the fleshy part beneath your thumb, that's your thenar. Now, how do you live this long without knowing you had a thenar and a lanule? <laughs> that may be, seem masuga, which is a Yiddish word meaning senseless or crazy to you. But it, it has its uh, advantages, too, to play that game. Because over the years, I've learned some words that I found very useful. That's where our sermon title comes from today. I found the word one time cross-tolerant or cross-tolerance as a noun. Medical persons here may be familiar with it, but I was not, nor neither was any of our family playing the game. And the definition of cross-tolerance is tolerance or resistance to a drug that develops through continued use of another drug that has similar pharmacological properties. So you build up tolerance. You're taking one kind of drug, and that prevents another drug from being effective if you have to switch. Now, of course, when I saw the term cross-tolerance, I was not thinking of pharmacology or of medicine. I was thinking of theology. And it seems to me that just as drugs of similar nature have increasing or decreasing effectiveness, it may be true, too, that the similar thing occurs with respect to the cross of Jesus Christ. Could it be that we have been overexposed to the message of the cross? Have we heard the story of the cross so often that it has lost its capacity to stir us, to move us, to convict us? Could it be that we have developed a spiritual malady, which for want of a better word, we could label cross-tolerance? Dorothy Sayers, the wonderful British novelist and defender of the Christian faith, reflected one time in one of her works that uh, people in England are horrified uh, thinking of a kitten killing a, a sparrow. Said these same people go to church every week and hear over and over about the crucifixion of the Son of God on an instrument of torture and don't think a thing about it. Has the, has the cross lost its shock value? Could Sayers be right? Have we become cross-tolerant? I think we have, not just because I observe others, but I can look into my own soul. And you know, familiarity not only breeds contempt, it can breed apathy. We're so familiar with the cross that we don't recognize its horror or its purpose or the shame that it was for our Lord. We read a text like the one I read from 1 Corinthians. And it's so familiar to us that maybe it's old news. It's like yesterday's news. Maybe it is possible, like Paul mentions in verse 17, that the cross is emptied of its power. An interesting phrase. How is the cross emptied of its power? People like us worshiping in this beautiful sanctuary on this lovely spring morning, we know all about the cross, don't we? We know so many different versions of the cross. We could probably draw out 10 or 20 different kinds of crosses from the Roman cross, the Tau cross, the Jerusalem cross that is on this pyramid, all kind of crosses. We know their history. We see them in architecture. We see crosses in literature. 
Some who've done enough study even know the various theories of the atonement, what accomplished, what God accomplished on the cross through the death of his son, and may be familiar with the classical view of uh, Gustav Arlene or the satisfaction theory of St. Anselm or the moral influence theory of uh, Abelard. We've read profound works about the cross. We have books devoted to a study of the cross. Looking just on my shelf, there are at least three books there focusing on the cross across the theological spectrum from Max Licato to John R.W. Stott to Jürgen Moltmann. But you see, we can know all about the cross from an artistic, liturgical, theological, historical, medical perspective even, and still be cross-tolerant, unresponsive, unmoved, immune to the message of the cross. We will affirm our faith this morning using the ancient words of the Apostles' Creed. And the early church declared that Jesus hadn't only suffered, but he had been crucified, dead, and buried. Crucified, dead, and buried. That's redundant, isn't it? I mean, if you were crucified, you were going to be dead. No one was ever taken off the cross alive. So why was the church so insistent on crucified, dead, and buried? Because the creed was being written in the face of Gnosticism. The heresy of the day was that Jesus wasn't really human. He only appeared to be human. He was kind of more like a phantom. But he couldn't suffer, not really, not the Son of God. He couldn't be hungry or tired or worn out or have questions or doubts about anything. So Jesus was not really crucified. No, he escaped. Some even wrote that Simon of Cyrene, who carried his cross, was the one who ended up being put on the cross, not Jesus. He escaped and went to heaven before the crucifixion even took place. But the early church said, no. Jesus was fully human as well as fully God. He was human literally and physically and factually. And he suffered. And he was crucified. And he was dead. And he was buried. Make no mistake about it. You see, Jesus came not just to die, but he came to suffer. And we don't like that. We don't like talking about that. But Jesus understood his own life and ministry in terms of being the suffering servant. Not just the servant, but the suffering servant. He knew that the crucifixion was on the horizon for him. He warned his disciples three times on the road to Jerusalem that he would suffer and die, be spit upon and mocked. He knew what he was, that he was walking into the jaws of death. You see, his death wouldn't carry the same significance for us if he, had died, if he had died without suffering. Think about it. If Jesus had simply drowned while he was out fishing with his friends, would we still consider him our Savior? If he had died of a heart attack at a young age, would his death hold the same meaning? I don't think so. You see, it wasn't just his death, but it was also his passion, his suffering, his scourging, his crucifixion, because we realize that he died in the place of people who deserve the punishment that he suffered brings us face to face with our own sin and rebellion. And so over the centuries, the church has done its best to try to articulate the meaning of the cross. But how can you do that? How can human speech adequately explain what Jesus did on the cross? <clears throat> and so the church has resorted to metaphors and analogies using language we can understand. The hymn writer said, What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? What language is sufficient for that task? 
And so we have all these different ways of understanding the atonement, which is the doctrine about what was accomplished on the cross. Different images, different metaphors in the scriptures. There's the substitutionary theory that died, Jesus died in your place and in my place. We read in Peter, 1 Peter, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we, free from sin, might live for righteousness because by his wounds we are healed. The passage from Isaiah this morning reminds us that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that has made us whole. Other images and interpretations of the cross speak of God buying us back through Jesus Christ, because his death was the ransom that was required for those who were captive to sin and to death. Matthew speaks of that. He was the ransom for many, Matthew writes. People talk about the cross satisfying divine justice, that God had to be satisfied in his holiness, and the offering of his son was the only thing that could do that. Others describe the cross as a victory of God over the forces of evil and darkness. And still others say that the cross is the clearest picture we will ever have of the extent and the depth of the love of God for his wayward children, that he would consent to allow his only begotten son to die in the place of others. Kind of as a tribute to the late Billy Graham, I put a quote from him on the front of the bulletin. God proved his love on the cross. That would be this view, that it shows us the love of God. Actually, the full quote says this. When Christ hung and bled and died, it was God saying to the world, I love you. So how do you understand and appropriate the cross of Jesus Christ? Yes, the, the cross, the crucifixion are scandalous and repulsive. And yes, the cross has always been and will continue to be a stumbling block to some and pure foolishness to others. But like nothing else, the cross of Jesus when we look upon it, brings us face to face with our own depravity and with the incomprehensible, unspeakable love of God for his sinful children. So, if we have grown cross-tolerant over the years, what can we do about it? What could we do that would bring us to accept our culpability in the death of the Son of God? I guess one thing we could do is we could hire a bunch of off-duty policemen, have them stationed outside the church, and when you walk out this morning, they could grab you, push you up against the, the uh, side of the church, handcuff you, read you your Miranda rights, and tell you, when you ask why they're doing this, that they have it on good authority that you are partially responsible for the death of an innocent man. Maybe that would do it. That's a bit extreme. We hadn't planned that this morning when you leave here. So how can we recapture the power of the cross? Because at one point, it must have spoken to us, or we probably wouldn't be here today. So when you think back on your life, when the cross had the power to move your heart, to penetrate your mind, what was going on in your life? You might ask, back then when I think of my spiritual walk, what was I doing then that I'm not doing now? That if I started doing it again, perhaps the cross would have more meaning. Were you more frequent in worship? Were you more devout in your prayer life, in your devotional life? Were you more active in serving Christ in some capacity? 
What were you doing then that you're not doing now? Not to the same extent. Or perhaps better for some of us, what were you not doing then that you are doing now? And because you're doing that now, you've become distracted. Your priorities and your passions have gotten all out of shape and form. And you're living for something other than Jesus Christ. I remember when the cross first grabbed me. I was already a Christian. I knew all about Jesus. I could recite the creed. I was either 8th or ninth grade. I can't remember. But I was at a summer camp that the Presbytery sponsored outside of Ackerman, Mississippi. And every evening, over the course of the week, we would go down to the lake and we would have vespers. <clears throat> and so this particular evening, we were going down to the lake for our worship service. I wasn't so interested in the worship service. I was trying to keep my eye on Rachel Davis, a pretty little girl from Meridian. I wanted to try to sit beside Rachel because I needed a date for the square dance that always closed out the week of camp there. So uh, anyway, the preacher for the evening was Tom R., now, some of you will know that name. Uh, Tom was a tall, lanky, young pastor in West Point, Mississippi. Some of you know his son, Tom R., who was a pastor at Westminster here in Charleston, then up in Columbia. He's now serving the Village Presbyterian Church in Prairie Village, Kansas, which is either the largest or the second largest Presbyterian church in America. But it's not that Tom. It's his father, Tom R., who was a fifth-generation preacher himself, and now there's seven generations of R's in the ministry. I, think, I don't know how long they had to think what they were, their name would be, but I'd love to know how they got the name R. Anyway, Tom was preaching, and he closed the Vespers by quoting. He was a great musician, too. He sang with Andy Griffith in North Carolina and directed the Synod's youth choir um, and had a great voice. But he quoted the, the words from John Stanier's cantata entitled The Crucifixion. And picture, if you will, Jesus hanging upon the cross, and he's looking down, and this cantata is based on a medieval prayer and a verse from Lamentations. And so Jesus is speaking from the cross, and he says, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold me, and see if there is any sorrow like unto my sorrow, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. From the throne of his cross, the king of grief cries out to a world of unbelief. O men and women afar and nigh, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? I laid my eternal power aside. I came from the home of the glorified, a babe in a lowly cave to lie. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? I wept for the sorrows and pains of men. I healed them and helped them and loved them, and then they shouted against me, Crucify, crucify, crucify. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? O men and women, your deeds of shame, your sins without reason or number or name, I bear them all on this cross on high. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Is it nothing to you that I bow my head, nothing to you that my blood is shed? O perishing soul, to you I cry. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? O come unto me. By these woes I have borne, by this dreadful scourge and crown of thorn, by these I implore you to hear my cry. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Oh, come unto me. This awful price, redemption's tremendous sacrifice, is paid for you, is paid for you. So why will you die? 
O come unto me. And for those of us who have accepted that invitation to come unto Jesus, not simply to take him into our lives, lives, but to accept the invitation to join in his life, you understand the answer to why the cross and see its significance for your life and for mine, for the church, and indeed for all humanity. And you will know why the cross matters despite its scandal, despite its shame, despite its seeming folly to so many. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.